Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Don't be afraid of being a contrarian. Four. I was throwing my slipper at the radio. Three. Too many people are embracing, well, this is the new normal. Two. Safe space, darling. One. We have liftoff. And it's blast off number eight. Welcome again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. So Britain and China have fallen out big time as Boris pulls the plug on Huawei. By 2027, the Prime Minister's pledged the UK will be rid of the Chinese telecoms giant. Plus the massive face mask mix-up. Face coverings will now be mandatory from the 24th of July in shops across England after conflicting signals from various parts of government. Now, in your Telegraph column this week, Alison, you've taken umbrage, umbrage, <laughs> towards umbrage. the idea of being told to wear a face mask. She's gone into one. Making us wear face masks, you say, back at the beginning of the pandemic would have made some sort of sense. But introducing a punitive new law now, with the infection rate in steep decline, seems like too little, too late. This has really got on your nerves, hasn't it? It has, Liam. I mean, what on earth are they up to? I mean, we seem to be about four weeks behind. I mean, it's a sort of tour de France of backpedalling. This just seems to me absolutely chaotic. Look, lockdown and the government project fear has scared the bejesus, to use a Halligan term, out of everyone. I understand that people are afraid and now they've scared them so much that they have to persuade them that it's safe to go to the shops. So now they say, oh, if everybody, if we make face mask mandatory we're going to fine you a hundred pounds if you don't wear a face mask in a shop you know how much homework i've been doing liam on this subject don't you and i mean you've become a total nerd on all this and i tip my hat to you major covid bore but anyway just to cut the long story short it's not much use wearing a face mask. I mean, COVID-19 laughs at face masks, OK? The effect of it, the scientific evidence for it is very, very small. You may remember a few weeks ago, the Deputy Chief Medical Officer, Jenny Harris, was in conversation with Boris and he asked her about face masks. And Jenny said they do more harm than good outside a clinical setting because the bacteria in the masks kind of gathers in the mask and people take the mask off, they pull it off, they put it in their bag, put it on the kitchen table, and it actually spreads the virus. Back pocket, that's where mine lives. Well, exactly, we haven't all... So, surgical grade... With my loose change. (laughs) 
don't want to know about the condition of your face mask. Let's not forget, this is a civil liberty, you know, to tell people what they are supposed to wear is a is a real infringement on our civil liberties. And if if I put it to you, Liam, if it's just a psychological placebo, if there isn't really a lot of scientific evidence supporting it, is that a good enough reason to have it enforced by British law? What do you think? Now, I felt I needed a kind of safe space, darling, because when I was on <laughs> any questions <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> over the weekend, I mean, I was literally on air and you were tweeting me, <laughs> saying, what are you talking about? You're talking rubbish. Throwing my slipper at the radio. You were actually, you were quite good. And then you got onto face masks and I thought, come on, Halligan, planet normal, planet normal. <laughs> yeah, I veered off into the sort of, you know, into outer space. Now, I t- so we do disagree on this a, a bit. I think if there was nothing in face masks, then why are face masks worn across Asia? If you travel a lot in Asia, even outside of pandemics, mm. these are, this is a part of the world that's done much better than us dealing with SARS and with COVID. That's one thing. The second thing I'd say is that, you know, I'm a big, hairy, six foot four bloke. I live mm. in a in a market town. There's lots of you know elderly neighbours tottering around the shops. If me wearing a mask... You know, I'm up and down to London, of course. Everyone in town knows that. And it makes them feel safer and it makes them come out because they do feel safer. So there is the placebo effect. Then why not just wear a mask? I agree with you that the mandatory thing really cuts deep. And that's why I thought Michael Gove was right before Mm. the government sort of did a U-turn on Gove. Because Gove had originally said on the Andrew Marr show, I don't think we need to make it mandatory because I believe in people's good sense. And then suddenly they came in the next day, almost as a snub to Gove, and made it mandatory. I thought that was a perfectly good point. I was in the hairdresser on Monday, and one of the girls asked me to wear a mask because she said it's not... It's not compulsory in here, but some of the ladies have been a bit nervous. Now, I'm really happy to make people feel more at ease. And I think that that's that's a good policy. But I agree with Michael Gove using common sense. My fear, Liam, is that this is going to get an awful lot of people for every person who says, I now feel not too scared to go to the shops. You're going to have someone like me who's going to think, actually, I'm not going to bother to go through that rigmarole. This is our Planet Normal Statistic of the Week. Are you ready for this? Yeah, I'm ready. This is the point at which the government has decided to introduce face masks, OK? There are one in 3,900 people have the virus. The chance of passing it on to anyone is one in 40. The chance of dying from COVID-19 at the moment is one in 6,240,000. And to give you a bit of point of comparison, it's one in 3,700,000 to be killed by a shark, OK? So, you know, God, that you... O-level maths failure runs deep. We all have to pay for it every day, don't we? Every, God. every, every week. But I am, I am, I put it to you. Come on, stop B, mocking must me. must try harder. I didn't even get a B, I got a D, for God's sake. But the point, surely the point is that, that if the economic harm comes from this, if it doesn't make people flood back to the shops, the masks, are they in five weeks' time going to go, oh, my God, and another of their reverse ferrets? What do you think? I can't contest your statistics because clearly you've taken on the chief nerd role of Planet Normal that was previously mine. <laughs> what I would say, Car- though, is... Carol, Carol Vorderman of Planet Normal. Carol Vorderman. Yes. <laughs> Rachel Riley, not... Rachel Riley, yes. <laughs> well, I hope so. That'd be nice. I like Rachel Riley. So, 
I mean, I agree with the great British public. The great British public is so often right on all these contentious issues. And opinion polls show that most people think we should be made to wear masks. My point, Liam, would be that what's the end game here? What's the exit strategy? So Matt Hancock's on the radio this morning and uh, Nick Robinson's saying to him, so when do we stop wearing the masks? Is that summer? You know, is it six months? Is it a year? And Hancock says, for the foreseeable future. Now, that's quite chilling to me. You know, this is a government minister basically saying, we're going to make you lot do this. We don't have to give you very much scientific evidence. And I'm just thinking, where does it end? I don't find the sight of people wearing face masks terribly reassuring I find it incredibly alienating I feel like I've walked onto the set of Alfred Hitchcock's The Birds you know it's this you've gone from Rachel Riley to Tippi Hedren <laughs> I have gosh I'd love to be t- Tippi Hedren in my she- dreams oh, great yeah but you know one of those great icy blondes wasn't she but seriously look think about this six months down the line a year down the line normal human interaction the way we smile the way we relate to each other all that changed in the public arena is, is, is that that really what we want? Well, it was a fabulous column. And if you'd like to read Alison's column and you're not already a subscriber to The Telegraph itself, as a Planet Normal fan, you can get your first 30 days free. That gives you access to all The Telegraph's news services, including Alison's column, my column at telegraph.co.uk forward slash normal. And we put that link in the show notes. Hi there, podcast fan. It's Tom Gibbs here. I'm host of The Telegraph's Audio Football Club podcast. I'm very sorry for interrupting, but I wanted to let you know that football is finally back on the menu, and so is Audio Football Club. We'll be back in your podcast feed every Monday with analysis, chat and sarcasm from Mina Razuki, JJ Ball, Matt Law, and many, many more. Look for Telegraph Audio Football Club wherever you get your podcasts. Now, as we've been discussing the impact of masks on retail, on shopping, it's time, Alison, to introduce our latest visitor to Planet Normal, a highly experienced British retailer, a risk taker, an entrepreneur to his fingertips. Tell us who you spoke to this week. Yeah, I thought it would be so interesting, you know, with all this going on to talk to someone who's really been in the kind of front line of retail and hospitality. And I thought we'd talk to Luke Johnson. He is one of the UK's leading entrepreneurs. I guess he's best known for pizza. Luke took over, became chairman of a relatively small restaurant business called Pizza Express. You may have heard of it. Oh, yeah. (laughs) By the time he sold the company seven years later, Pizza Express had grown from 12 restaurants to a chain of over 250 and market capitalisation had reached over £500 million. I have to say, Liam, that I think quite a big slice of that was from me buying dough balls and margarita pizza for my two children. We seem to spend half their childhood in Pizza Express. So Luke's been chairman of Channel 4. He's head up, headed up several charities, non-profits, Institute of Cancer Research, Royal Society of Arts, Risk Capital owns stakes in Gales Bakery. And most wonderfully, I was very excited about this, the Brighton Peer Group. So if, oh, we, wow. play our, if we play our cards right, Get Halligan, some fish and chips. Uh, it, fish and chips, free candy floss all round. <laughs> so I started by asking Luke Johnson, what has been his general impression of the government's management of this lockdown? I think the whole thing has been badly designed from almost the beginning. And I think it's caused vast collateral damage of all different sorts, much of which 
is still to come. And I think the underlying removement of our freedoms and our liberties in, a, in an unprecedented way is not perhaps often remarked upon, but is in many respects the worst aspect of it. We have seemingly passively complied to this unique removal of democratic rights, which are very, very basic. And uh, I am so surprised that more people haven't protested bluntly. I think it's shocking. So you were surprised by the speed with which we complied. And were you, have you been surprised that a Conservative government has been pushing this stuff through? Absolutely, and very disappointed. I was pretty jubilant with the results of the election at the end of last year because it rid us of Jeremy Corbyn and the hard left. Mm. But unfortunately, we've had instead Matt Hancock and his colleagues introducing laws and rules and guidance which feel more like a um, totalitarian society than a, a civilised one. The economic damage, again, I don't think we will really see the true results for some months. Obviously, as furlough ends and people are either returned to work or lose their job and are made redundant, we will see the perhaps the worst human toll, in economic sense, of those who are made unemployed. At the moment, I think it's about two and a half million who are claimants. I fear it could go to four million or even conceivably five million. There are some pessimists, and I think they are being extreme, that think it will be worse. But if it even goes to four million, that will be higher levels of unemployment than we have experienced for many decades. And the misery and damage to the national finances that that will cause will be very severe indeed. And this is obviously on top of the fact that we will end up borrowing at least 300 billion this year as a country to pay for furlough and all the other costs of this uh, lockdown. And, you know, ultimately those borrowings have to be repaid, even if the interest rates are very low at the moment. Mm. That will have consequences for taxation, for crowding out other investment and the ability for us to even afford to pay for the NHS. And uh, I think it's one of the things that people who say, well, you shouldn't think about the economy, it doesn't matter what matters in people's lives. Yes, but if we can't afford a decent NHS, Mm. then that will have very dramatic effects on the nation's well-being too. And the economy is us, and you can't divorce the two. There is always a trade-off. Do you think the government, in this, you know, getting us to be frightened enough to abide by the restrictions, that that's been overstated and the thing you've just described, which is the sort of economic carnage, do you think that that's been underplayed and that people are not aware of the horror that's coming? Well, I think the propaganda unleashed on us in March and since by the government has been the one truly effective policy that they have executed. So they have been brilliant at frightening the country to a degree that no other nation appears to be. So I saw in an Ipsos Mori poll recently that we were the most scared of 27 Mm. comparable nations around the world. And I think the fear is now possibly even worse than the lockdown slash pandemic in terms of the damage it's causing our way of life. Because I think if people are scared to go back to work, scared to take public transport, scared to send their children to school, scared to go shopping, you know, this will have very severe consequences for our standard of living and cowering in our homes 
cannot be the way ahead. An obsessively risk-averse, hypochondriac country is not one, personally, that I wish to live in. No. And, you know, I think the government can be accused of making a number of errors over this difficult time on things like testing, on things like um, dispensing elderly people away from hospital beds into nursing homes without checking if they had Mm. the coronavirus, so introducing the disease into those populations of vulnerable people and in a number of other areas. But the one department that did well, if you like, is Project Fear. I think the government have realised they've scared us too much and they're trying to dig us out of this hole. So hence now we have this prospect of possibly mandatory masks in shops. Liam and I on Planet Normal, so we, we disagree about this. You know, if I'm required to wear a mask to go into a shop, that's not how I want to shop and certainly not go into a restaurant. Is your feeling that masks is about this digging us out of this fearful situation? And do you think they might work? I'm pretty certain that it's mainly about reassurance rather than compelling evidence that it has significant benefits in terms of its preventing transmission of the disease. The proof on that is is debatable. There are papers arguing each way. I think it is more about trying to reassure those scared, witless people that it's safe to go outside, uh, it's safe to go to shops. Uh, however, my view, I agree with you, I think it acts as a constant reminder for everyone that this disease is taking over our lives and it continues to reinforce the hypochondria and the obsession about one single illness to the detriment of every other aspect of life. You've been pretty excoriating in your criticisms on Twitter, which, of course, I've loved. But you've said the British generally abide by the law and respect the rules. Unfortunately, we have a government that is spectacularly out of its depth and badly advised. It is increasingly difficult to take them seriously and believe we live in a rational country. I mean, that's that's pretty damning, isn't it? How would you stand that up? Well, I think for a start... The core cabinet has no one with any medical or even biological qualifications of any kind. For example, although I gave up medicine at at the age of 21, I actually have more medical qualifications than the entire cabinet put together. And you mentioned earlier the Institute of Cancer Research, Mm. which I chair, and, you know, we have many eminent scientists on our board, and I am used to debating and talking to scientists and challenging them occasionally. And I'm not necessarily challenging them about their scientific research, but I fear that what happened in Cabinet was that they took as gospel everything that Sage said, including the catastrophically over-exaggerated projections Mm. from Imperial College and Neil Ferguson and his team, which is the heart, I think, of scaring our nation witless, the prospect of half a million deaths if nothing was done. But, you know, you cannot put a society, a modern, complicated society, into an induced coma for, I don't know how many weeks it is now, but it's sort of 110 days or something, and not expect enormous damage. And I am a bit of a pessimist in that some economists believe there will be a rapid bounce back and a V-shaped recovery. I fear not. And we shall see by, say, October or November, when furlough ends what the true damage is in terms of unemployment. But as I say, I think if we have, you know, four million unemployed, it will take a long time for many of those people to find another job. And we all know the harm that can arise from people who are out of work. 
we saw last week, didn't we, Rishi Sunak's, you know, eat out, help out. Do you think any of that package will help your sector the, or the sort of hospitality and retail? I think it's all useful and we're grateful. You know, one shouldn't complain. The poor old taxpayer as a whole is paying for it, whereas only one sector is really benefiting. It can't do any harm. I still think the most important thing by a mile is to have a plan to end social distancing and a absolute stop to all the propaganda that is scaring people. I was very pleased to see in the last day or two the politicians now saying, OK, you don't have to stay at home anymore. You know, too many people are embracing, well, this is the new normal. Until there's a vaccine, we just have to live in this bizarre way. Well, A, we can't afford to, and B, I don't agree. I think if we are hanging around waiting till a vaccine before a reasonable level of normal life can resume, (laughs) it's going to be too miserable for words and I will not live here. No. So last week, the French Prime Minister said in Parliament that France would never have a second lockdown because we've learned that the economic and human consequences from a total lockdown are disastrous. Would you welcome a similar admission from our Prime Minister? Of course. And I doubt we will get it because the enemies of Boris and the Tories will pounce and use any excuse to attack them. So admitting that you've made an error is very difficult for politicians. And I have to say that I think here and in America, for example, a great deal of the attacks on government are because they loathe the party in power, Boris and Trump, obviously. And so there are elements, I think, that are almost celebrating the fact that, you know, a lot of people have died and not all has gone well in terms of the government policy. I'm not celebrating any of it in the slightest. I think it's tragic on many levels. And, uh, you know, I don't attack our government for ideological reasons. It's simply a practical situation where I think they have been poorly advised. So I was visiting my beauty salon at the weekend and the owner, who's made a very successful small business, you know, she came up to me and was showing me these pages of guidance, Luke, and you wouldn't believe it. She said... So I can trim a man's beard, but I'm not allowed to tint a woman's eyebrows. It's all preposterous. It's stupid. It is, I have 10-pin bowling alleys that remain shut. Gyms have given a date to reopen. You can play basketball, but you can't go 10-pin bowling, and there is no date yet allowed for these places (laughs) to open. And the logic behind it all is there isn't much. And all it is is a sort of um, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for box tickers and bureaucrats to go mad with their risk assessments. They are in seventh heaven at the moment, and this is not how society advances. This is not how progress has been achieved. The politicians like passing laws. It's what they're paid to do, and they see it as for our own good. But they do not always know best, as history tells us. And I'm afraid to say that I think the advisers too have not by any means got anything right. You know, they will be, if anything, to cover up their mistakes, re-emphasising the risks and the dangers and the possibility of a second wave and so forth and so on, because they've got a big sunk cost now in terms of the advice they gave. And uh, they will be discredited publicly if it emerges, as I think it should, that mistakes were made. So they will do everything in their powers because... As far as they're concerned, you know, the, their status as, as the brilliant people who know all about coronavirus is everything. And I'm afraid to say I think they got a lot wrong. 
So you, Luke, were in the vanguard of the modernisation of the British high street. I mean, I'm old enough to remember, you know, Littlewoods, where I was a Saturday girl, and, you know, just the wimpy with the one congealed tomato sauce on the Formica table. So you brought pizzazz and, and life to the British high street. What's the British high street going to look like from now on, and what's it going to look like in 10 years' time? I think it will depend where you are. So I think London will be okay because it normally is. There's enough money here and enough tourists and uh, you've got residents and workers and a combination of customers. However, I think in many high streets, in many towns and cities around the country, things are going to get much worse because fewer operators will stay alive or more of their branches will be shut down. And we will have to be imaginative in repurposing those buildings to try and find new uses that are relevant to the 21st century. What's happened in the last four months is that the switch towards e-commerce, and unfortunately that too often means one company, Amazon, has accelerated dramatically. Those that can are switching more and more of their resource and emphasis towards e-commerce. But for those who can't, don't have the resources or the model doesn't work for them online. You know, they're in in trouble, many of them, and I see a very difficult future. Obviously, those that are experiential, such as pubs and restaurants and so forth, you know, you can't, so to speak, eat out online, really. I don't think so. <laughs> and so one hopes that people resume the habit of going out to have a meal and a drink and that old patterns of behaviour will return. I think that public transport getting back to normal will be very important because I think an awful lot of people aren't willing to commute. But it's quite lonely always working from home, I feel. Yes. There are productive reasons to be with other people in an office, say, in terms of communications and cooperation and understanding and so forth. The nuances aren't very good on things like Zoom. So I am a believer in face-to-face I know that a lot of people are content to sit at home. I guess it depends on your personality and, you know, what sort of commute you have. Well, also, we've had uh, Mr Sunak's quite generous furlough, haven't we, persuading people that being at home is nice? Do you think think the furlough went on too long? Yes, definitely. I think end October is far too long. I would have ended it probably end August, cut it off and dealt with the consequences. I also have to say that I think a fabulously sunny spring made a huge Mm. difference. I think if it had been a classic, damp (laughs) British spring, Mm. I think we would have got a lot more fed up earlier. But you've seen how brown people are. People have been sitting in their gardens for weeks and weeks on end. And I slightly worry that we have lost a bit of our work ethic. I think that for some people, they do work quite hard at home, but a lot of others perhaps not. You said you thought that Britain would be the worst hit major nation. How so? Well, I think the fear. I think that because we are scared, I have friends in places like Germany, Switzerland and France, and they're telling me that things are pretty much back to normal and that the cities there near feel roughly as they used to. There's obviously masks around in some cases and there's a certain amount of social distancing, but more or less everything is reopened. Life has resumed, offices and schools and so forth. In this country, I don't think anyone could pretend that things are as they were. We've got some catching up to do, and that's why I worry that we will be worse hit. It's not because we had more deaths per million. I think it's because we have scared ourselves 
And I think the media, I'm afraid, I don't necessarily mean the Telegraph, but in general, <laughs> images and video and so forth and social media amplifies these things, plays on our emotions, has made us, in some respects, more sentimental, less rational, less stoic, and ultimately more scared. Looking back to an earlier generation of the media, I mean, your father, the great columnist and writer Paul Johnson, was an icon for many of us. If he had that spectator column, Telegraph column now, what would he be fulminating about, do you think? I imagine that I'd like to think he would be in agreement with us. I tell you for why. And to a degree, I've taken my father's philosophy to heart, which is don't be afraid of being a contrarian. If you believe something, you can afford to stand up to the crowd, be in a minority. Indeed, it's not just you can afford, you must. You have to follow your beliefs and your conscience. You need to do your homework and not be a maverick for the sake of it. But quite often, society as a whole suffers from groupthink. And I think that is what has happened in this period, in that, you know, a majority of people have been told this is what you should believe about this illness and you have to follow these rules because it's for the common good. And I disagree with much of that. It's not because I lack empathy or because I'm obsessed about money. Peer pressure has forced us at many levels to think in a certain way. And I think being willing to stand up and take a different stance and face criticism for it but follow your beliefs because you think it's right is important. And I'm disappointed that, for example, across industry, virtually none of them have stood up at any point and disagreed with anything the government's done or questioned any of the regulations or policies. I know, as it happens privately, a few have confided to me because they've seen my tweets. They agree with me. But they feel because they're running a big public company or because of their public reputations, they're not willing to stand up and be counted. And that's very disappointing. So if as a leading entrepreneur and you had to mark the government out of 10 for its pandemic management, what would you give them out of 10? It has to be said (laughs) that this is, so to speak, a one-off and that if they had pursued the sort of policies that I might have preferred, they would have faced enormous criticism. We may well have got better results, however. I think it's interesting to see the flack that Sweden suffers, and I admire them greatly in their leadership for taking a independent path. And I think longer term, they will prove them to be right. But what I would say overall, in terms of the government's handling of it, is probably only five out of 10. Mm. I think, you know, could do much better is how I would phrase their report card. (laughs) Thank you so much, Luke Johnson, for joining us today. I really love talking to you. Thank you, Alison. Nice to talk to you. God, he's a proper grown-up. The dissemination of propaganda is the one effective government policy with the most scared of 27 comparative nations. Great interview. Well, I really enjoyed talking to him, and I think he doesn't seek to attack for political advantage. He he just wants us to be okay. And I think so much great stuff came out of that, Liam. You know, as you say, the most scared nation, the group think. Something we've already mentioned a lot on Planet Normal is this fact that our political leaders can't be honest because we have a media that just wants to attack them. So the French Prime Minister can say, we'll never have another lockdown. That's it. It's been a disaster. But Boris 
couldn't say that because of our political culture. Isn't that a shame? Yeah, lots of political loathing, as Luke Johnson said. I thought also canny analysis when he said that government advisers and ministers, they're going to re-emphasise and even overemphasise the dangers in order to cover up their previous analytical errors. So compounding the damage to the economy. And it was good for me as somebody who called a big unemployment spike, you know, quite a while ago and was lampooned by some other economists to hear a captain of industry say that he too thinks that unemployment could go to four or even five million. I mean, if we do go to 4.5 million, that's 15% of the workforce. And as for a V-shaped recovery in the last couple of days, we've heard that the economy grew just 1.8% in May. And, you know, many people have said, oh, wow, there's the V-shaped recovery. We're bouncing back. Alison, if you drop 25% in two months and then you go up less than 2% in the subsequent month, you're still 24% below where you were. This is not a V. This is a sort of crochet needle recovery. (laughs) Well, I read that we were on course for the deepest recession since 1709, which one in seven furloughed workers to be losing their jobs. And I think you know, coming back to what Luke Johnson said, the economy is us. You know, there's been this false, as you've often pointed out, Liam, there's been this sort of false equivalence between you either care about lives or you care about the economy. But, you know, the economy, if we're going to have 4 million unemployed, there's going to be enormous amounts of of suffering, isn't there? Economic nosedives kill people just as ghastly viruses kill people. You've had some tremendous work over recent years by a Nobel laureate economist called Angus Deaton. He points to deaths of despair, how economic collapse, how failed businesses, how financial stress literally shorten lives. It's a debate that will go on and on. And I thought, let's just move on to another story this week, Alison, because it's also in the sort of economic sphere This was the week when the wheels really came off the new golden age of cooperation between the UK and China. It was back in 2015 that the then Chancellor, George Osborne, hailed a new golden era in Sino-British relations when he visited President Xi in Beijing. President Xi then came back to the UK on a reciprocal visit, went to the pub near Chequers with David Cameron. That's right. They toasted the, the new golden era and then the Chinese bought the pub. (laughs) is there anything they haven't bought you know Liam something that jumped out at me about this well let's call it a u-turn the government announcing that Huawei wouldn't be participating in our telecommunications at least not from 2027 but barely half a year ago GCHQ you know our intelligence hub said it was perfectly safe to use Huawei and Back in March, 306 MPs supported the government and agreed that Huawei would be welcomed into our telecommunication system. And I don't know if you remember Theresa May actually mocking a Tory MP who dared to suggest some scepticism about allowing this vast Chinese beer moss to kind of, you know, go to the very heart of our communication system. So my concern, Liam, is that What were these people doing? Were they asleep on the job? Were they perfectly happy to have these people infiltrating us in order to support sort of lots of money coming in? I think as Richard Dearlove warned us several weeks ago now in an earlier episode of Planet Normal when he spoke to you, there were a lot of people in the British establishment who just saw it in the country's economic interest and maybe even in their own financial interest in order 
to promote the economic advantages of being close to China as opposed to the security dangers. COVID has changed all that because there has been concern, deep concern, rightly, about how Beijing's responded to this virus, the way they've tried to initially cover it up, the way they've attacked other countries that have criticised them, not least our close allies, the Australians. But on top of that, I mean, you can't deny that Beijing has used the chaos that this pandemic has engendered in order to really push the boat out when it comes to Hong Kong. The Chinese are now in clear breach of the one nation, two systems deal, which they did with the British uh, when we handed over in 1997. That's an international treaty which is now being completely circumvented. Do you think there will be retaliation? I mean, we saw our old friend, uh, the Chinese ambassador, old smoothie chops, Lu Ming. We've got to get uh, him on the podcast. Go on, Alison. <laughs> there you go. I think that could be our that would be a challenge for the year, couldn't it, Mr. Zhao Ming? Would you like to come and be abused by Alison on the Planet Normal podcast? Well, he's he's been you know saber rattling. He's saying that they viewed the decision over Huawei as a litmus test over whether Britain is a true and faithful partner of China. Are we going to be hit financially? Do you think by this principal decision? I think we are to a degree, but I think we have to maintain our our poise about this. Look. China runs a massive trade surplus with the rest of the world. If the Chinese can't maintain that kind of huge export performance, their growth will plunge. They're then going to have major domestic political problems because the basic deal in China for the growing middle class, you know, people of massive entrepreneurial ability and energy is you can't vote and you can't really say what you want, but you're going to keep on getting rich. If the export markets aren't there, if the rest of the world says, look, we don't like the way you're acting, then the Chinese will have a major political problem. I think this is an outbreak of common sense by uh, the government. And however much we may criticise the government when we do on this podcast, I think at a time of enormous pressure, Dominic Raab in particular, but the government in general, has done the right thing on China. So let's finish with some messages from readers and Planet Normal listeners. Another fabulous batch of emails on our favourite topic, childhood elf and safety. Here's a lovely one from Fiona, Liam. I was born in the deep Suffolk countryside in 1961 and we were out all day playing in the woods. Our parents, of course, having no idea where we were. I can remember trying to ride a bullock. My friend fell off. <laughs> what? piling hay bales higher and higher in the barn and then leaping off the top. My parents used to put us all six of us in a VW Beetle and drive to Scotland with me in the boot. I can remember curling up there and reading and occasionally stopping to be sick. In the village playground, this is the best bit, the baby swings had a piece of wood which slid down the chains to hold you in. Do you remember those little... Oh, I do, yeah, I do. ...little buckets that they sat in? But nothing was between your legs to keep you there. Being very small, I slipped off the swing in mid-flight and knocked all my front teeth out. My adult teeth are still a very strange colour, says Fiona. It's amazing we survived. I think after the COVID, you and Liam should invite everybody who's written in to a get together and we can share all the wonderful stories. So I thought we could hire like some huge open top truck and then all of us just pile in the back and le- le- what do you think? Lean over the side and revisit our kamikaze childers. What do you think? I think we should get on eBay and, and try and <laughs> purloin from somewhere. Yeah. 
dodgy playground rides from our childhood that have since been banned. You know that horse thing that used to land yes. on your head and the witch's yes. hat that used to crush you, yes. break your femur, you know, and you have to be told to run it off when you go to school. Oh, state of mind. Stop complaining, Elegant. <laughs> I have had, obviously, a lot, a lot on masks. We've got Sarah. I've tried to remain positive, but this week's announcement on masks has really sent me down. We knew that lockdown would end, but this nonsense really is, God help us, the new normal. I am furious with Boris for agreeing to this, as he so clearly doesn't believe a word of what he's saying. There is some light, however, as I found Planet Normal on YouTube last week. Hooray! Can I finish with a quote from someone who calls herself Mummy Bird? This really struck a chord with me. She said... Surely the resounding Conservative victory at the general election showed that ordinary people, quote unquote, wanted to be able to make decisions for themselves and don't want to be bossed about and managed by state control. Why not let the public decide how they risk assess their lives? Maybe have masked and non-masked days in shops. Now, I don't think that's a bad idea because I'd quite like to go in on a non-masked day, Liam. That's you again rejecting your face, <laughs> nappy Pearson. <laughs> I know. So that's it for Voyage number 8 to Planet Normal, another magical mystery tour. It's mission accomplished. If you want to comment on anything we've said, anything in the news over the coming days, please do write to us, as ever, at planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. This podcast is free to listen to, and you can do so on the Telegraph website or by subscribing on your podcast app. Now, confusingly, subscribing to a podcast has nothing to do with being a subscriber to the Telegraph. Keep up what? with the back. Keep I know. I'm, you know me, I barely know what one is. I know there is a podcast because I'm on it. It just means the podcast is automatically downloaded to your app every time there's a new episode. If you'd like to listen to Planet Normal on a smartphone or a tablet and you're not sure how to subscribe to it on an app, there's now a whole article explaining all things podcasts on the Telegraph website. And we're going to put the link to that in the show notes of this episode. We certainly will. And do leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We're currently on 732 reviews, which is amazing for a podcast, which is less than a few months old. But let's try and get to a thousand. Hooray! And, and how many of those did you write, Halligan? <laughs> don't, don't tell them, don't tell them. So as we leave Planet Normal and speed back to our mad, mad world, thanks as ever to our brilliant producers, Louisa Wells, Elliot Lampett, and our wonderful editor, Theo Leludis. So until next Thursday, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.